You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. It sounds strange to say it now, but the first major English translations of Soren Kierkegaard's work weren't published until almost a century after his death. The Walter Lowry translations of the late 1940s, however, were a major influence on a number of American thinkers and writers of the mid-20th century. John Updike, for example, fictionalizes his first encounters with Kierkegaard in his 1961 story, The Astronomer. He says, I was 24, and the religious revival within myself was at its height. Earlier that summer, I had discovered Kierkegaard, and each week I had brought back to the apartment one more of the Princeton University Press's elegant and expensive editions of his works. They were beautiful books, sometimes very thick, sometimes very thin, always typographically exhilarating, with their welter of title pages, subheads, epigraphs, emphatic italics, italicized catchwords taken from German philosophy and too subtle for translation, translators' prefaces and footnotes, and Kierkegaard's own endless footnotes, blanketing pages at a time as crippled, agonized by distinctions, he scribbled on and on, heaping irony on irony, curse on curse, gnashing, sneering, praising Jehovah in the privacy of his empty home in Copenhagen. The demons with which he wrestled, Hegel and his avatars, were unknown to me, so Kierkegaard at his desk seemed to me to be writhing in a clutch of phantoms, slapping at silent mosquitoes, twisting furiously to confront presences that were not there. It was a spectacle unlike any I had ever seen in print before, and it brought me much comfort during those August and September evenings, while the traffic on the west side highway swished tirelessly, and my wife tinkled the supper dishes in our tiny kitchenette. Kierkegaard remained one of Updike's most important theological influences throughout his five-decade career, to the point where he once said that he intended his fiction to be object lessons from Kierkegaard and Karl Barth. My name is Michael Farmer. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is David Crow, professor of English at Augustana College. Professor Crow has taken the time to go systematically through all of Updike's writings on Kierkegaard, and the result is his book, Cosmic Defiance, Updike's Kierkegaard and the Maples Stories. It's available now from Mercer University Press, and I'm delighted it's brought him here on uh, Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for coming on the show, Dave. Well, thank you for having me. Kierkegaard is such an enormous subject that we need to spend some time at the outset here narrowing him down. Uh, what parts of Kierkegaard are particularly important for Updike and thus for his readers? Oh, what parts? He, he listed, you know, the books. Actually, I, you know, cover this in the, in the book. I, he, he listed the books that he encountered first, Fear and Trembling and Repetition, and he quickly moved on to others. Uh, interestingly, late in his career, he actually denied reading books that he clearly had read. And uh, so it, he seems to have almost forgotten some of the things he read, which is actually easy to do with, with Kierkegaard. The, oh, yeah, the, there's uh, so much of it. There's so much. And it's so, um, I don't know, it's not easy to pin, it, it, it has a sameness about it. <laughs> so it's, it's easy to get lost and forget what you've read and what you haven't. Um, the important stuff, I would say, well, I would say that, that for him, the, um, the existential questions, especially as they relate to, to theological questions, I think, I think Updike's Kierkegaard was a very theological Kierkegaard. Well, he's coming to him through Bart, right? So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And coming to him through a, a, a pressing personal need. Um, you know, raised a, a Lutheran himself, Updike just felt this incredible lostness in, uh, in a, his early adult career. And uh, it was Kierkegaard that, who pulled him out of that. Mm-hmm. So, so what uh, particular concepts do you, do you find helpful in Kierkegaard for, uh, for understanding Updike? Well, for me, what works best, frankly, in the fiction is to apply the, um, the stages. Um, digging more deeply into the stages helped me to understand the fiction a lot better. Knowing, for example, that Richard Maple and and many other of the um, male Updike characters who are very much like the author himself, uh, knowing that they seem to be in the aesthetic stage, they share many of those qualities, um, knowing that many of the women who surround those characters epitomize the ethical is helpful to me, and then knowing that there's this mysterious leap of faith and this possibility of authenticity and right feeling and nearness to God, uh, um, 
that that part is for me only implied in the stories in Updike's work, but it's it seems to me definitely to be there. And you distance Updike from his otherwise autobiographical characters in the sense that you seem to suggest that he he does not spend most of his life in the aesthetic stage. I'm not convinced about that. I I, I do distance him somewhat. I I let me put it this way. I notice that he employs irony when he uses those characters. They are very much like him, I admit. And and quite frankly, I just don't know that much about um, Updike's activities as a young man in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, you know, when these stories deal with him. Um, I may learn more in November because his son David is coming here to campus to talk about the role he plays in the stories. And oh, what how exciting. Actually, yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, you know, what actually happened versus what appears in the story. So I, I may know more, you know, in a few weeks. But but, but for now, I would say um, it's very possible that Updike was just as randy and giddy as Richard Maple, but he had a certain awareness about it that Richard lacks. That, that That's a possibility. Right. And, and uh, you read the Adam Begley biography last year, I yes. assume. Because uh-huh, that, that biography I found in some ways very depressing <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, that, that is how it presented him. And I thought, well, if, if this guy who is writing Richard, Richard Maple is such a jerk, yeah. is just like Richard Maple, what, what is he doing? I know. What is he doing? I, 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 this is one of the reasons I've found Updike such a puzzle over the course of my career. And one of the reasons I keep returning to him, it's, it's not because I understand him well, it's because I feel that I don't understand him, that I keep returning to Updike. Um, it, the, the, the biography had the same effect on me, actually. I, I was disappointed in the man. Uh, it, it's not as though I expect people to be um, utterly decent and witlessly sincere all the time, but Updike seems to have been borderline cruel to people around him. And maybe only in the context of mid-century male American authors, can you let him off the hook? Well, right, exactly. Because the best yeah, you can he... say is he's definitely not Norman Mailer, he's definitely not Cheever, but he's, he's, still, <laughs> no. he's still crueler than you want him to be. He's a man of his times and also a man of his place. I, I Somehow I associate his behavior more with the sophisticated East than, um, uh, than with the Minnesota where I grew up. And where I live now, but he, but he, mm-hmm. he himself just refused to be considered that way, right? Because he, he, he always presented himself as just kind of a, a country boy who, who mm-hmm. stumbled into that milieu. But mm-hmm. he's very cagey. He, he, he uh, like many writers, he just did not want to reveal that much about himself uh, in a sincere mode. Although there are passages in self consciousness in which he's, you know, very frank about the pain he's caused for his family and, and also very frank about um, how important it is for him to attend church most Sundays, you know? So there's, there's this broad range. I guess he has a broad personality as, as a friend of mine once said about one of my sons, he has a very broad personality. Uh, hopefully no pun intended there. No. no. <laughs> Let's talk a little about his uh, Lutheranism. You, you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier that, Updike was raised Lutheran, even though he, he attends Congregationalist and Episcopalian churches as an adult. Kierkegaard shares that background. Kierkegaard, as far as I can tell, just gives up on institutional Christianity altogether mm-hmm. toward the end of his life. Mm-hmm. In what ways do we need to think of these guys as quintessentially Lutheran authors? Well, I, I think they both understand and, 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 and with a critical consciousness adopt the theology, the, the, the core ideas. Uh, the notion that we don't move ourselves toward God, the idea that God is really wholly other than us, um, the idea that God reaches out with a great gift to us and that we can respond authentically to that gift. I think these are very, very key ideas that uh, Updike adopted from Kierkegaard and Kierkegaard adopted from Luther. And with it comes this notion that Updike is, as, as he himself puts it, antinomian. What is that? What is that antinomian? Term well, he he um, he's antinomian in the sense that he just doesn't understand how the how the theology functions. You help me with it. What what did you gather? I was saying about the antinomian quality of his theology. Well, the way I've always thought about it, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but the mm-hmm. the, the way I've always thought about it is there's such such an emphasis in Updike on guilt. 
right? He he almost he almost relishes in it from the time of like music school through I don't yeah. know the mid '80s when he becomes disinterested in it. Yeah. And, and when I think about antinomianism, I, I think about a uh, I think about a philosophy or a theology that says spiritual progress isn't really possible. All there is mm-hmm. is just infinite guilt and infinite grace. Mm-hmm. Over and over and over again, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, no, to that exactly. extent, I, I really do think he probably is antinomian. Yeah, I do think so too, and 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 frankly, that's frustrating to me. Yeah. I, <laughs> I I guess I have this sense that um, that grace-filled people can achieve something like goodness, or at least ethical coherence, and and um, I sometimes get the feeling from Updike that he didn't even want to try. Uh, uh, it is coherent. I mean, I think the idea is coherent. The idea that if we are lost and broken human beings, uh, redeemed only through God's grace, then you do wonder how much personal effort ought to be involved in your life. You know, I, I do think the one saving thing in Updike, though, is that he did believe in love. He he did believe that we are creatures capable of loving one another, and that therefore we were able to answer the the love commandment. And and that's I guess the the most um, oh I guess non-intuitive thing that I'm trying to argue in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually surprised me when you brought that up. Although it made sense after after reading the argument that that this is the hill he stands on and looks at his characters. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Are they are they really loving their neighbor? Right, right. And of course, we only can love incompletely. We can only love badly. But you know, the idea is that we at least are informed with that love once uh, once God has has, um, oh, I don't know, created that sense in us, yeah. And we all pray we're better at it than Richard Maple. Yeah, I guess that's right, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll get to the actual stories. Maple's a bad guy. He's he's not anywhere close to Updike's most loathsome protagonist, but I, no, reading, that's true. reading through those stories again, I, I'm, I'm just struck by how... Uh, how clear-eyed Updike's portrayal of, of that character is, how little sympathy he seems to have for him. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm sure that, you know, I just wish I knew the borders of the two men's personalities, the fictional man and the real one. I wish I knew, um, you know, where Updike's kindness uh, made him unlike Richard Maple. Because Richard is, as you say, a, a pretty reprehensible, childish man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you what, wonder why his children even love him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Except that he's their father, and, yeah, and right, what other what right. other choice? To, and plus, they don't seem to as adults. You know, Judith. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember if it's actually Judith Maple or one of the other many oldest daughters in in Updike's fiction. At one point, she just she just moves out and and lives with a hippie, and and yep. doesn't seem to give much thought to her father, as her father didn't give much thought to her. Through, through all the sixties and seventies fiction, there's this. There's this idea that the parents have just completely abandoned the children, the and, and that the children are going to pay for this, and the parents are eventually going to pay for it. Yeah, and of course, parenting styles have really changed. You know, I mean, I was a kid in the '60s, and I can certainly tell you that my parents paid less attention to me than I was expected to pay to my kids in the last couple of decades. Um, there, there was a um, what should I say, a casualness about uh, relations between parents and kids uh, in a generation earlier, but but still, <laughs> um, Richard is quite a guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, one of the uh, unusual moves you make, at least in terms of Updike studies, is that you de-emphasize the dialectical quality of Updike's fiction. And I think, mm-hmm. I think most critics take that dialectical quality for granted because of this interview, you quote it, where he says that he has this yet but, yes but character yeah, right. in his fiction. Why are the rest of us paying too much attention to that dialectic? Well, I don't know that you are. Um, <laughs> and I, 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 I do call out a couple of people who I won't name here, but I mean, I, I do call out some who it seems to me um, retreat to the dialectical character in order to um, release Updike from believing much of anything. Mm-hmm. And that I find really troubling. I, I, I think the man was quite clear in self-consciousness and others and, and other works. He was quite clear that his faith informed his life fundamentally, that without it, he'd be lost. And his, uh, you know, his treatment of derougement and others indicates that he had very serious doctrines about the reality of love and its role in our lives. 
And he said again and again and again that sexual love is important. Uh, it's beautiful. It's lovely. It's exciting. It's a dimension of our lives. But it isn't the only kind of love that's possible. And that, you know, a non-erotic neighbor love, agape, is possible and furthermore is real. So um, what I object to is dialectical quality that, try, that, that is used or employed to ignore um, those kinds of realities. Uh, the, the, the problem is there's just so much sex in the fiction. Mm-hmm, there is right, right. I mean, he says he, may, he says there's this other sort of love, but he doesn't. Uh, most of the time, he doesn't seem terribly interested in it to me. Interested in the sex? Uh, interested in in the other kind of love. I'm sorry. Oh, in the other. <laughs> oh, he's definitely interested in the sex. <laughs> no, yeah, he is. He is. Well, here's the here's the problem. I mean, in, in my view, I mean, working with the um, the stories themselves, the agape is always only implied. He he codes this complicated subtext into the stories, usually through biblical or classical allusions. And, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that, 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 that it's there, um, but the, the fabric of the story itself is always cruelty, sexuality, adultery, etc., yeah, so I mean, it sounds like there's a dialectic for you too. It's just not the one that the the unnamed critics are are paying attention to. Oh, there's definitely a dialectic there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think he's working with something like a, a Lutheran paradox and just trying to make it real for us. Um, the paradox is is this that even though we wish to be good, uh, we cannot. And and he takes that very seriously. So his characters just repeatedly cannot be good. Um, it, it makes for, a, I think, a very frustrating reading experience. Well, I mean, it's kind of it, it's it's kind of he presents you he presents you with the either or, right? You have to pick Richard, the the aesthete, and I, I guess we should go ahead and define those terms since we've been using them. Yeah, sure. uh, the, the aesthete is this this person who is interested mostly in pleasure. He's he's afraid of boredom. He doesn't have any any real commitments to anything. He's he's an mm-hmm. ironist. He he just kind of floats through life, mm-hmm. and then. Joan is the ethicist, and the ethicist is a person who is who is deeply committed to some cause or another. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, 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 and both of these strat- both of these are strategies for keeping at bay the terrible information that we die. Right. Yeah. Right. But but so he presents you an either or, and there's no represent there's no representative in most of the stories of this higher sphere of life, the religious sphere. Right, and so it's there mostly right. by its absence, as you say. Right, that's right, and but of course that's absolutely consistent with Kierkegaard, who right. said that the, uh, the the person who's achieved the religious stage, the person who's made the leap, simply cannot be known or identified, and in, and in fact that person, you know, um, in a non well, that person cannot communicate anything about the experience of knowing God to others. So there's no such thing as counseling and teaching. Um, in the in the processes of faith, it's something that each of us undergoes really alone. But because Updike doesn't encode this sort of person into the text, even as an example, mm-hmm. he's much more frustrating than somebody like Walker Percy, who does. Yes, yeah, I mean right. Percy has that's these right. religious characters. That's right. But as as I've written uh, recently, um, I just published a, a piece on the moviegoer. Um, it's just possible that Walker Percy. Um, adapt Kierkegaard unfairly to his Catholic theology, in in which you know a person might be aware of actually having faith and might know. Uh, well, you can you can be aware of it, but might be able to communicate to others what faith is like and how important it is and how desirable and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure Kierkegaard would agree with Percy that that's possible. Well, and any time Percy himself talks about who's in what stage in his fiction, I always, I always disagree with them. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, he says, like, Will Barrett's in the religious stage, and I just, I don't, I don't see that. In, no. in The Last Gentleman, I think that's just nonsense. He's, he's right. just this kind of free floater between the stages. Anyway, this interview is unfortunately enough not about, uh, <laughs> not about Percy, so maybe that's, sure. uh, maybe that's a discussion for another time. Okay. Let's, uh, can you give me the broad strokes of the Maples stories that, that you're talking about? There's, there's 18 of them. Um, yeah, this right. is, I believe, the first book-length study of all of them. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, come to think of it, it is. Uh, there, there were attempts to read the first oh, nine or eleven, I think, stories, 
uh, late in the 1960s, a couple named the Hamiltons uh, took on the project and, um, and wrote some pretty compelling interpretations. But no, this is, I believe, the only time that anyone has tried to interpret all of the stories. Even though these stories are almost as important for Updike's corpus as like the rabbit novels. I've come to believe they are. Um, yeah, in fact, I think working hard with the stories, you know, I taught them in the classroom for years and years to, you know, to make sure that I was uh, understanding them more deeply, to keep returning to the stories again and again and work through my interpretations and that sort of thing. And I really have grown to think that they epitomize Updike's talent in a way that the, um, the rabbit stories don't. You know, the problem I have with the rabbit stories is that... Um, Updike's main characters are not as well educated as he is. And that's not the case with the Maples stories. The Maples have also been to Harvard. So they're a little bit, um, they're, they're more fluent, let's say, in discussing their own existential situation. Right, so, yeah, there's something unbelievable at the core of Rabbit Angstrom. Yeah, I'm afraid there is, actually. Yeah. And, and again, frustrating and odd. You know, his, his behavior is so outrageous that you wonder, is, is this person real? Um, but, but I, I, I guess I have some of those same problems with the Maple stories. So do you want me to sort of outline the, uh, trajectory of the Maple's marriage? Yeah, if you would, just, just briefly. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, Updike began writing these stories. I don't think he had a sequence or a series in mind when he began writing, um, in the middle 1950s. And he invented these characters, a, a young, um, well, his career is indefinite, but a, a young man living in New York with his young wife and, and, um, and, and the stories kick off. Right from the very beginning, you can tell that there's something troubling about their marriage. There's something that they seem to lack love for each other or full affection or full attention for each other right from the very beginning. So uh, about every two or three years, um, advancing the time frame to the time when the story is being written, Updike would write another Maple story. And eventually there come to be 18 of them. They chronicle the, the marriage between Richard and Joan Maple over the course of, I guess, it's 22 years. The marriage does end in divorce. Um, it's, a, it's a sad sequence. Uh, there's an additional story that's written uh, a good decade after the 17th that brings the two together as uh, grandparents at the birth of their first grandchild. It's a very heartening story in, in my view. It is. It's about uh, the only cheerful one in there. It is. It is. And actually, as I suggest in the book, it's possible that Richard uh, is a knight of faith in that story. It's possible that he has achieved a sanguine faith. And um, we, will, we will talk about that one for sure. Okay. All right. Uh, and it, it's probably worth noting that the... the the marriage of the Maples seems to very closely parallel the marriage of, of John and Mary Updike, his first Absolutely. wife. Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah, we, we don't really have time to go through all 18 of them. <laughs> so I'm going to focus instead on the stories that I like the most and the stories sure. that have what I take to be your most interesting readings. So okay. we should start with the very first one, Snowing in Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. The Ma Maples have been married for a few years. They've just moved to Greenwich Village. They have this old college friend, Rebecca Kuhn. Is that how you pronounce it? I believe so, yeah. They have her over for drinks. Richard walks her home, and they seem to come close to a sexual encounter. That's the bare mm -hmm. plot of the story. Mm -hmm. The typical reading um, following the Hamiltons is that Rebecca is some sort of temptress whose clutches Richard is very fortunate to escape. Yeah. You turn that reading on its head and suggest that the Maples are actually the villains of this, of, of this story. Why is That's the right. failure theirs and not hers? Well, it's good theology. I don't, I don't know how Updike could adopt a world suddenly as a good Lutheran in which Rebecca, just for having her own will and perhaps a sexual appetite, Rebecca becomes somehow an agent of evil uh, that, that Richard you know, might be drawn into. I think it's very plain from the very beginning that Richard is a sort of giddy, thoughtless, and sometimes crude young man. So uh, I, I just have trouble buying that, um, that worldview. And, and the other reading made sense to me when I read it, the, the Hamiltonian reading of, of mm -hmm. Rebecca being, but you, you suggest in your, in your chapter to go back and look and, and there's nothing she does that is out and out lascivious. She doesn't, mm -hmm. she does not come on to him in any kind of outward way. No, that's right. Did I convince you of that? You did. Yeah, I was. Uh, th this is this is one of those rare uh, academic readings where it just completely <laughs> flipped the way I thought about the story. Awesome. I'm I'm so glad to hear that. And you make it into a story about the failure of hospitality. 
Yeah, that's right. I, I, I try to pick up on the notion of, see, this is one of those stories where actually you do get the uh, non-erotic love, the agapic love uh, expressed as neighbor love. I mean, my argument is, of course, that Rebecca is a neighbor, literally and figuratively or theologically a neighbor. And as I reread the story with that uh, notion in mind, it, it, it began to dawn on me that Richard and Joan, though they're, you know, reasonably hospitable hosts, and, uh, are really not that kind to Rebecca. And, and in fact, it kind of prompted me to begin thinking about the rest of the stories. Am I going to see this kind of alienated friendship um, with others uh, with other neighbors in, in the other stories, and, and sure enough, you do. Well, neighbors and friends become so important to, to Updike's work that it makes sense that the, the cracks you see develop into canyons later on would be here in the original or the first Maple story. Right. Um, Updike's uh, adultery stories are always um, based in adultery between neighbors. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes the story just the stories very, very sad. I've always thought of snowing in Greenwich Village as not a particularly sad one, but now, uh, now it seems sad to me. <laughs> well, it's it's a it's a prophetic story, I think. Anyway, it sort of points up uh, fault lines in the marriage and maybe fault lines in in Richard's consciousness. So I think, in that sense, it's uh, you know maybe Updike did know that he was going to write uh, subsequent stories about this couple. I, it, it's not clear to me. It's one of the very few Maple stories where you get a genuine act of affection between the two of them. Joan, mm-hmm. Joan hugs him when it starts snowing. Yeah, that's that, right. Yeah, it's, hard to, it's hard to imagine her doing that 10 years later. No, right, right. Though funny, funny you say that because they do occasionally have this um, inexpressible love for each other. Uh, even in the later stories as they're preparing, well, particularly in the later stories as they're preparing to divorce, and I know we'll talk about this later, um, there's wonderful affection between the two. So well, that, the, you know, the bizarre I, scene in re- separating. Yeah, that's right. And so I, as a reader, sort of think, why are these two separating? Why are they breaking up? There's so much that they have. But anyway. Jim and right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, let's, let's move on to Giving Blood, which is, mm-hmm. uh, it comes a few years after Snowing in Greenwich Village. It's the first yeah. story that really shows them teetering toward divorce. It's the third mm-hmm. one, I think. If you count wife wooing, which um, Optic seems to have later decided was a uh, Maples story. That's right. That's my wife's favorite uptake. Uh, anyway, in giving blood, Joan has convinced Richard to go with her to Boston on a Saturday to give blood to her cousin. He complains a lot about it, but then he has this quasi-religious vision of their blood merging. And after they're done, they go to this pancake house. And the whole mm-hmm. time, Richard is trying subtly to get Joan's permission to begin an affair, again with a friend of theirs. What is uptake up to in uh, giving blood? <laughs> well, um... Well, what he's up to, I think, is communicated by the very clever title. Um, giving blood is is uh, oh, uh, a daily act. It's a, it's an act of um, uh, 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 well, it's a it's a neighborly act. It's a matter of giving uh, some of your tissue to another person in need. But of course, it, I think it also refers to grace. Um, the, the Christ's sacrifice was his giving blood so that uh, we might be free. If you start from that point you see this, the story really as a satire on human cruelty and giddiness and uh, sexual indulgence. And you see um, this, this vision that Richard has while he gives blood, this vision of his and Joan's blood pooling beneath their beds uh, or cots. Uh, you get the sense that, that Updike is actually pondering the possibility that two of them might actually be one flesh. Uh, that, that's, I think, at the heart of the story. Of course, the story ends with what I call the incorrigibility move. Um, all of the hopefulness of that vision is basically wasted in the final moments of the story. And we can talk about that if you want to. Yeah, let's, but, let's uh, talk about yeah. that. You're talking about when they, they, they have this rejuvenating moment. And he, they walk out of the hospital and he tells her, I really loved you back there. Yep. And then they go, to, they go to this pancake house and tell us about the conversation there. Well, the problem with the pancake house is that you know, while, while Richard might be I have to use religious language here. While while he might be repenting, and he might be trying to make things right with Joan um, in a spirit of repentance, um, in fact, he's decided to script for the two of them um, a little drama in which she's his secretary and he's taking her out in, a, in, in an adulterous tryst. 
so you see his mind just keeps dragging him back to, um, I don't know, the joys of adultery. And he finds himself unable to love Joan authentically. So, of course, the, the little drama ends with their both being bitter toward one another. And, and it's, it's a sad story in that respect. That deeply sad last line, we'll both pay, because he doesn't have mm-hmm. the money to pay. And she, she says, we'll both pay. Yeah, that's classic Updike, the cleverness of that final line. And they, they do pay. They, they pay in pain uh, throughout their marriage, yeah. But, I mean, the other – I guess it has a triple meaning because obviously she's talking about the pancakes. You're reading it as, as they're both going to suffer. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I th- again, I think this is the Hamiltonian reading that, that it also suggests that in some ways there's a grace remaining in this marriage that mm-hmm. Richard Richard's not able to accept. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I admit that. I, and I see what you mean. You've told me that your reading of, of the stories is more dialectical than mine. And I see what you're saying here. Um, you want to find some hope in this uh, final drama in the story. Is that what you're saying? I, I am. And there's, uh, there's, only a few, there's only a few maple stories where I think that hope exists. And giving blood seems like one of them to me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But I, I, I mean, I agree. It's also, it's also very sad. I mean, it's not like this is a happy ending. Oh, no. No, it isn't. But, you know, at the same time, I don't know, I guess to step back from the, the moment, for, uh, it, it, it is hopeful that Richard and Joan are at least talking to each other. They're at least constructing this fantasy together. Um, yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when that's the best you can say, it kind of yeah, says I'm, it all, I'm, doesn't I know. It? I'm, I'm criticizing myself as I speak, but then that's my normal mode. <laughs> That's pretty uptightian. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's skip forward, uh, forward a few more years to marching through Boston, uh, mm-hmm. in which Joan drags Richard, and again he complains the whole time um, yep. to a civil rights march. While he's there, he has this moment of genuine and apparently non-sexual or real rarity uh, affection for a teenage girl. But when mm-hmm. they go back home, he's cruel to his own children, and really most horribly, he mocks the black leaders of the march in this really terrifying scene where he can't stop putting on yep. black face voice. Uh, yeah. What does Richard's failure to love at the end of that story tell us about who he is? His failure to love and who he is. Well, you know, as I as I suggest in the early part of my reading of that story, you know, there's a, there's this uh, uh, Richard and Joan discuss Joan's recent trip to the South, where she has been volunteering in the civil rights movement, and she has witnessed a psychotic break while she's there. Um, a couple of African American girls. Uh, witnessing a speech of suddenly collapse. They've suddenly collapsed and, and it's identified as a psychotic break. Uh, something is happening to them psychologically that's out of their control, in other words. And I bring that to the end of the story and say that the same thing is happening to Richard. There are theological overtones to what he's doing. He's, you know, in mocking the speakers that day and in being cruel to his family, in being uh, incredibly selfish in that scene, he's... Um, He's clearly sinning, but I also think there's a problem that Updike wants to present to us, and that is that sometimes people aren't sinning willingly so much as they are simply acting out their own psychological traumas. And, um, you know, it, 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 it raises real questions about what sin is if, in fact, we um, may be psychologically ill. I, I think I think it's a complex story that raises com- some of these uh, issues, while at the same time showing us that clearly uh, justice and right were on the side of the civil rights marchers, including Dr. Martin Luther King, who um, appears as a kind of shadow or ghost in the in the middle part of the story. But at the same time, the the story it's not like the story presents Joan as the exemplar either because she no. she fails too because she yeah. she won't she won't love everybody she only loves the people the march allows yeah. her to love yep there never is a model of christian love in the stories although this one actually comes nearer than others because as i suggest the the model of christian love in the story is Dr. Martin Luther King himself. Right, and so much King imagery in all of the Maple stories, right? Yeah, there is. So, so yeah, it, it makes is. sense that that uh, that a a King would be the the model here. Mm-hmm. Well, my my favorite of the Maple stories is the Taste of Metal, in which Richard has his teeth filled, gets drunk at a party, wrecks his car, and makes out with another woman while Joan goes to the police station. 
Yep, that's my favorite too. Oh, cool. <laughs> I, was afraid, I was afraid you'd question me on it because I'm not sure I have a, a reason why I like that one the best. I just, I just think it's really well constructed. It uh, is. It's a beautiful story. You, you suggest as much as anything else that this story is about the limits of the ethical sphere. Uh, where, where do you see that mode falling short in Taste of Metal? Well, everywhere in the story. Um, as Richard, you know, Richard, who's had dental work done at the beginning of the story, and, and the dental work is posed as, a, I guess, evidence of his, um, uh, his, his failing personal self, his failing body. He's aging. And um, the, the ethical comes in as Joan fails repeatedly to um, get the keys away from him to... Um, uh, help him with his driving and that sort of thing. And, and he drives drunk. He gets uh, Joan and, and uh, his future mistress uh, into a car accident because he drives drunk. And it's um, her, weak, um, her weak entrance into the uh, problems of the evening, I guess, that indicates to me that the ethical is being satirized. And I mean, so many earlier critics say the fault is entirely... Richards for not listening mm-hmm. to Joan, but mm-hmm. he, I mean, as you as you point out, I mean, she shouldn't have just been politely reminded. Darley, there's a curve coming up. I think she says she. Yeah, she that's right. She should have Darley? hit him over the I head. Think she actually asked the question, Darley. Do you know about that curve coming up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I don't think it's very um, pointed satire. I I I don't think any reasonable reader would say, "Oh, Joan has really done a, a terrible thing here, allowing her husband to drive drunk." It feels like a very ordinary human situation to me, you know, how things get out of control, how we find ourselves in situations that we later regret. That all feels very true to me about the story. And yet, I think both uh, Richard's aesthetic joys and Joan's, uh, what, ethical limitations are on display, yeah. Right, and it's the rare reader, I'm sure, who reads the Maple stories and comes away admiring Richard more than Joan. No, exactly. I, I can't imagine doing that actually. But the but yeah, you can't let Joan off the hook because because these these are not parables about how how great how great everybody's wife is. There are, by the way, a couple of critics out there who celebrate Richard for um, seizing his genuine freedom. Oh, for crying! These are the same yeah. people who think of of Rabbit as as being the existential hero of those books. Well, exactly. Exactly. In fact, there, there's one reading out there on, on Rabbit that, that blames God for not pulling the uh, stopper on the bathtub that drowns uh, Rabbit's baby. Um, th- there's some strange thinking out there about human freedom and human responsibility. Especially, anyway, especially in the early days of Updike criticism. Like yeah. the, the, the first few years, people were very interested in, in praising. I think they were high on, uh, on the road or something. Well, possibly, and I think they were definitely um, excited about the sexual revolution that you know Updike was recounting for his readers. Yeah, th- this is why it's not helpful to read Rabbit Run without reading the Centaur after it. And there's that there's that dialectic. Mm, yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I want to look at a relatively minor Maple story, the Red Herring theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has a relatively light tone. It's just Richard and Joan talking about how to conceal adultery while appearing to reveal it. That's the red herring theory. Very yeah. few critics have written on this story. Your analysis of it touches on everything from pop psychological high mock, low mock distinction yep. uh, to Christ calling of the disciples. Uh, t- tell us why the red herring theory is more worthy of attention than people have traditionally given it. Well, it's it's such a typical Updike story. You know, it, it, it presents itself as just a drunken conversation between a husband and wife after a, a, a pretty wild party. They talk about the food that's been ground into the carpet and all of the uh, 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 booze containers left in the room. And in fact, they continue their drinking as the, as the cleanup goes on. They, they don't do much cleaning, quite frankly. They sit, and decide <laughs> to, they sit and decide to drink brandy and taunt each other. And, um, and things go badly. You know what, at first was kind of fun. They were kind of enjoying the ironic talk with each other. Eventually, the talk becomes vicious, and that's where I think the Machiavellian comes in. Uh, you know, Richard, in fact, uh, is it Richard, I think, who, who says to Joan that her theory uh, about uh, the evening was too Machiavellian, too decadent, and that I just take as an opportunity to bring Machiavelli into the, uh, into the discussion, and uh, so the, the story really does become about uh, a certain kind of ruthlessness, and... Um, uh, so uh, I guess what I'm saying is that the story is rich in subtext, 
and the subtext is theological and philosophical and fun to dig into. And I guess I always thought of that story as a piffle, maybe because maybe because it it you know it was never published before too far to go. So I figured no magazine wanted it because it was just this light, plot heavy story. It's not even plot. Yeah. It's just this. It's it's just, it seemed like a distraction, a diversion. But yeah. I mean, your um your analysis of it is very rich, uh, as you say, and very um it it really goes to the to the core of this and finds underlying movements. You say well, that I made, you say that Joan I made so is many a... discoveries writing this book. You know, I had never I had never known that people in the '60s were interested in this, you know, Machiavellianism, and that it, it you know it, that it had become a, a way of judging um, the behavior of managers in professional settings and stuff like that. I had no idea that these things were out there, so that was fun for me. How did you find the the pop psych book uh, about Machiavelli? Oh, um, I think that was just the wonder of uh, the internet, frankly. I, I I saw the you know I saw the reference to uh, Machiavelli and I went online to do some reading and I think I ran across the idea that you know that we don't have to look at the early modern philosopher you can also look at the 1960s phenomenon of uh, you know a, a pop psych Machiavellianism mm-hmm. which are, you know contemporary to the to the story right contemporary to the story exactly you, you argue that essentially that story finds Joan attempting to act like Richard she does get. She does get co-opted into the regrettable behavior as the stories go on. You know, is it is it the Hamiltons? I forget who says this, but somebody um, says that uh, that the problem with Joan is that she begins to retaliate, and and the only way she knows to retaliate is to actually indulge in some of the same behaviors that Richard is. So she begins sleeping around too. And, but it um, doesn't work because you can't you can't fight fire with fire, right? Well, he has no conscience, <laughs> so um, uh, you know, behaving badly in front of Richard actually gives him pleasure. Yeah, like, and we didn't talk about it, but we may as well talk about it now. Your lover just called is is kind of the ultimate example of that, where yeah, where Joan attempts to attempts to create a lover for, uh, I'm sorry, Richard attempts to create a lover for Joan. Yeah, only to find out she kind of has one, maybe. Nobody, yep. Nobody's quite sure what's happening. When nobody's Mac quite does. sure. Yeah, no. Yeah, well, the the context of the other stories reveals that 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 she has been having affairs, actually, quite a number of them over quite a long time. Um, but uh, in the context of your lover, just called, we're not we're we're, we're not supposed to be sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. She has that really brutal line toward the end. I'm just a beat up middle aged woman who wants to uh, who wants to play tennis with a bunch of other beat up middle aged women. Yeah, Stop trying right. to make me interesting. Yeah, that's right. It's a it's a very perverse story. You know, it's a it, to, for me it's a portrait of a, a, a man and woman who are supposed to love each other, and the, the the children are in the story. So you see how important it is that they do love each other, and that they do provide a a loving home, and yet the perversity in their relationship leads to such degradation and such pain it, it's it's really i think among the saddest of the stories i find it i find it very difficult to read and and the whole the whole time of the story they're pushing the children off on each other joan, they are. joan says I, I i don't have time to do this or that i'm i'm taking care of my husband and his many children yeah yeah that's right now in in david updike's stories there's the sense that um david felt i think that his parents were actually quite attentive and quite loving. Um, there are scenes in which uh, uh, the, the character who's, who's John Updike uh, takes time uh, out of a visit to, the, after the divorce, takes time out of a visit to, to be the goalie in, in a soccer game and to, you know, let David have a lot of fun in the backyard. And it's quite a touching story. So, um, you know, who, who knows what the Updike reality really was. Let's hope it's better than, uh, than the stories. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the most famous Maple story, and maybe maybe Updike's most famous story, if you don't count A and P, is uh, separating from 1975. Mm-hmm. Richard mm-hmm. and Joan go through this really painful process of telling their four children they're splitting up. Here, you find uh, echoes of the New Testament, um, this like parody of the Christ of Christ's Last Supper. Mm-hmm. What is Updike trying to say with those resonances? Well, and I'm not the first to to observe this. I mean, critics uh, before me recognized that there was uh, a, uh, what, a profane Last Supper at the heart of the story. Um, I just kind of 
run with it. I just find more allusions to Christ, uh, Christ as healer, Christ as carpenter, than other uh, critics had in the past. So I just had fun with that story. Um, I think that's, you know, I think that is an extremely important Updike story because, as you suggest, as you point out, he he puts the um, he puts the passion story right at the heart of this story about a failing marriage. And so we see that there is a complicated link between um, the suffering that Christ underwent and the suffering that we do because of our own sin and our own flaws. So I, I find the story very beautiful for that reason. But the uh, but but it also speaks to like Richard's conception of himself as a victim. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Even even through all his guilt, I mean, Updike's characters are always very good at feeling guilty. Yeah. Yeah, but, well, he he's so um, he's so profoundly screwed up in the final few stories. You know, as the as the divorce comes to um, uh, well, as the marriage comes to its end through the divorce, he's he's just so deeply confused. He has these incredible haunting memories about the love between him and Joan, about how they met, how they fell in love, the purity of their love early on, and that sort of thing. And and at the same time, perversely, he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing for the divorce. Uh, you know, Joan is, is literally begging him not to divorce her. Um, she threatens suicide in one story and, and seems to mean it. And yet uh, Richard is just so... Uh, willful that he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing for this freedom that he thinks is going to improve his life. And and the freedom is to immediately or very close to immediately marry another woman. Yeah, so it's deeply ironic. Uh, uh, he 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 leaves one marriage that he feels puts that he feels controls him, and just to enter into another one immediately. Mm-hmm. And, and the same thing, of course, happened to to John Updike. Yeah, it's funny if you read the if you read the interviews right after his divorce, he uh, he says he's not going to get married again, and he's married six months later. He, yeah, and I think he knew that right at the very moment that the divorce was going on. I think he and Martha were already involved with each other. If if I read the Begley book properly. Oh yeah, you know she she seems to have been he he seems to have left Mary for Martha. Yeah, that's Which, right. Talk, yeah, talk about your uh, talk about your biblical resonances, huh? You, can, <laughs> yeah. you can't make that stuff up. Yeah, and of course, in the book, I try to stay away from that stuff. I, I really don't want to comment on Updike's own life right. very much. I don't feel it. In, I don't feel inclined to judge it, and I, I know you don't either. Yeah. Um, I try to stick with the stories. Yeah. Yeah. Leave, leave that. Leave that to Begley. Who I think. I, I mean, that was a very good book. He did a very good. It's job. It's a very good book, yeah. especially pre. Um, you know, he, Martha Ruggles Updike seems to have not. Uh, not given him very much help, so there's That's there's right. so, so little information after 1976. But right, I right. thought it was I thought it was a very good book. What impressed me too is that I, I don't gather that Begley has any particular interest in theology or religious questions himself. But I think he was quite fair on those questions. I, I think he 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 was willing to admit that Updike had a, uh, a a deep faith life and that it meant a great deal to him. And you know, Begley doesn't really dig in on it very far, and he. I don't believe he even mentions Kierkegaard, but he um, certainly um, is aware of Updike's faith life. Yeah, and he 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 gives us certain scenes from his life. I remember he talks about him saying the Lord's Prayer on his deathbed and things like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, the story that immediately follows separating is gesturing, um, and that is another story your book convinced me to take a closer look at. I had not read that one terribly closely before. Um, Richard, in that story, has moved out of the Maples house. He's moved into an apartment across from the John Hancock Tower yep. in Boston, which is shedding panes of glass. Uh, he's in a relationship with Ruth, the woman who's going to become his second wife. Uh, mm-hmm. But he also continues his sexual relationship with Joan. And, and what does that story have to tell us about the realities of marriage? Oh my! Oh man! I don't know if I can answer that question it's about the realities of marriage. <laughs> it's uh, well, um, I, I suppose it it shows us that marriages are um, far less secure than we want to believe they are. I suppose. I don't know. I think the story is is more about just this um, consuming narcissism that Richard has. Uh, he really he really believes that in some sense he deserves both women, and. Um, and of course, I play with the fact that he sees his reflection in the in the disastrous Hancock building, and and fails to see the prayer in the window right in front of his own nose. So um, 
you're talking about the uh, the Snoopy sticker. Uh, no, I'm talking about uh, etched into the glass of the window. Um, there is a, uh, a a motto with this ring I be wed. I oh, think that's right. That's right. Sorry, yeah. I, have, I have it confused with a different story. Uh, it's so easy to do. You know, the stories are complex, and there's so many of them. But um, yeah, I, I, I make a lot of the fact that the uh, the Hancock Building, which uh, Richard says he loves, is a um, re- reflects his own identity. It's a it's a disaster. It's murky at its roots. Um, it's about mirrors. It's it's uh, it conveys narcissism and poor design, and um, and yet you know etched with a diamond in the glass in the window that he's staring through is this little reminder that he might actually have an authentic marriage with Joan that he might actually honor the love he clearly feels for her but he just cannot or will not honor that love 15 years or i think it's 15 maybe 15 is when uh the afterlife and other stories is is released the collection i can't remember when the actual story comes out anyway a, a while after the publication of too far to go yeah which is the the first maples the first omnibus maples volume anyway right. updike publishes the actual final maple story grandparenting you mentioned it earlier and and you you pointed out that that richard may be the knight of fate that we've been hoping that he would be he may be the missing religious sphere what makes you yeah. say that well, there are a number of reasons why. Um, the first is that he's a much older man, so what, his his sexual pleasures are clearly diminished. I mean, it, those pleasures are not the focus of his life anymore. So in a sense, you know, biology has just relieved him of his greatest uh, problem. Um, secondly, I think that... Um, I, I think that coming to the hospital and finding Joan as almost more uh, former friend than former um, spouse uh, leads him to sort of non-erotic feelings about her and and really non-erotic appreciations for her. He spends a lot of time in the story thinking back to what a wonderful partner she was when they were at Harvard together. Uh, They attended a a poetry reading that E.E. Cummings gave on the campus, and he recounts that in in the story. Thirdly, I think um, there's non-erotic love evoked in the the love he feels both for his daughter who has a baby in the story and for the new baby itself and i find i find richard's reaction to both his daughter and to his new grandchild i find it very touching very real in a way that all of his um sexual dalliances have not felt real to me in the earlier stories it's kind of a completion of marching through boston in that sense in that sense, it is yes, exactly, and and also there's this hint that um, that there's psychological trauma uh, in, in the background of the story. Richard goes home to a very very cold hotel room on the night of the birth, and has a virtually sleepless night, and and has terrible dreams during the time he does sleep, and it, clearly the, this awful night he's having is a portent of his own death, uh, and. And he awakens from that actually to renew a warm and loving relationship with, with others, specifically with his grandchild. So there's a, I don't know exactly what to say about it. There's a patience in him and an openness uh, uh, and a capacity to love and to understand the pain of others instead of his own sensations. All of these things feel hopeful to me. And so there's a, there are at least hints that he may have achieved something like faith or faith's benefits in the story. And because because Updike is silent on what happens between here comes the Maple, here come the maples and grandparenting, there's just there's no way to be sure. That's right. He tells us next to nothing about what Richard's life has been like in he, the intervening years. He also mm-hmm. has kind of a weird affection. Except that the story does hint at a couple things. <laughs> I mean, the one hint that the story gives is that. His relationship with his second wife is, in some ways, just as fraught as his relationship with Joan had been. Who, who would, who would imagine? Yeah, who would imagine? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm, I'm kind of touched by his weird affection for Andy, Joan's second husband. Mm-hmm. He seems to, he seems to like him in a way that I'm not sure I would have expected him to, or maybe I would have, given that Rabbit becomes best friends with Charlie Stavros. Yeah, right, right. Well, I, I do think that, you know, uh, uh, Updike poses the two men as foils in the story. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that, that Richard is able to um, forgive Andy or 
um, oh, I don't know, see himself in Andy is that, of course, the two men are virtually identical. They both, um, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, sinned their way out of one marriage in order to enter into another one, and, and, and the, the subsequent marriage doesn't look extremely happy or much happier than, than the first marriage had, had been, again, predictably, as you point out. And uh, so I, I think, you know, Richard, um, in, in recognizing his own error, I think Richard is finally able to... Um, recognize error in others in a healthier and more mature way. I, I think something like that is going on. It, it certainly makes the, uh, the entire maple cycle less depressing than if it ended with here comes the, here come the maples. Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, you could argue that, that uh, rabbit on his deathbed also has a, a you know, a, a move toward faith. I mean, maybe, you know, for all of this incorrigibility that I accuse Updike of, maybe he really did want the happy ending. Um, you know, he has to uh, code it subtly. He can't be overt with it, but, but maybe he did want his characters to, um, to get there. You know, I, I have that feeling anyway. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think if I can think of a, uh, uptake book that has an unreservedly happy ending besides self-consciousness. You talk about that. He had the self-consciousness ends with this really heartfelt expression of his own faith. Yeah. Where, where he goes out on Sunday morning and picks up the, the newspaper. Yeah, he writes about how much he, he yearns for a genuine afterlife. He contemplates, you know, what it will be like. He, he revisits those New Testament passages on, you know, divorced people <laughs> um, meeting again in the afterlife. He's, he's ironic about it, but there's this, um, there's this intense wish for the afterlife to be real. Yeah, because I mean, as as he felt from a very early age, apparently, that's the only thing that can make life not a horror show. Yeah, and I, that's at the heart of Kierkegaard. It, it is it, Kierkegaard says it. The, once you make the leap of faith, it is the confidence in eternity. He won't call it anything like heaven or even an afterlife. It's the confidence in eternity that is reforming, that is relieving for us. And I don't know any other way to make sense of that except to say that, that it, it means we don't just get 80 years on this life if we're lucky, but we are intensely relieved to find that a God of pure possibility wants to be with us forever, um, which is absurd to say, but there it is. Yeah, what else is there? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd like to end these interviews by asking our guests what, uh, what their next project is. Do you have one lined up? I do have one, and it's quite different from this one. Um, I've actually been chided by a couple of Updike scholars for giving up on the Updike project. They want me to keep working on that. But, but I, you know, as you've noted to me uh, as we talked earlier, I, I get tired of my own projects, and I'm certainly tired of this one. So I decided that I really wanted to go after more readers. By the way, thank you for being a reader. Thank you for reading my book. Not very many people have. And I'm delighted that you read it and read it with such appreciation and such intelligence. Thank you very much for that. Oh, you're, you're welcome. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you know, that's the thing with academic books. There, there are so few readers. You, I, you just feel that. I mean, it's just it's sad in a, in a sense. You yeah, you wish... do feel like you're writing into a void. Well, you do, actually. Yeah. Or you're writing for just, you know, career advancement or something like that. So anyway, what I've done is to write a non-scholarly book. Uh, kind of a trade book on um, Hemingway and Ho Chi Minh living as neighbors with each other in Paris in the early 1920s. Uh, a novel? No, no, oh. it's a study. Uh, they oh my gosh. Were neighbors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there's no evidence that they actually met, but, um, uh, but Ho Chi Minh, then calling himself Gwen I Kwok, uh, did live in Paris and uh, sort of joined the Communist Party while in Paris and, 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 learned his ideology in the city. And at the very same time, um, Hemingway and his first wife, Hadley, moved there, uh, just, what, three or four blocks away. And uh, so I tried to um, examine both of them in their context in Paris in the early 1920s. That's insane. <laughs> how, how close are you to being done on that? Uh, it's at a publisher. Oh, wow. So yeah. it'll, be, it'll be out before too long. Well, with any luck, it will. I'm, I'm hoping and praying and keeping my fingers crossed uh, it's a good publisher too, so I'm really, really hopeful. But um, yeah, it could be it could be out within the next year. Well, I hope uh, when it comes out, you won't be too big for us, and you'll come back on the show to talk about it. 
There is absolutely no danger of that. <laughs> I don't know. Trade paperback. You could be a, you could be a, you could be a big star. Well, um, here's hoping. But I, I'd be happy just to have a bunch of readers. That would be that would be thrilling to me. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. We've been talking with uh, David Crow. The book is called Cosmic Defiance. Updike's Kierkegaard and the Maple Stories. It's out now through Mercer University Press. You can find a link to it at our uh, website, which is christianhumanist.org. Uh, the Christian, Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, this is Michael Farmer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>